Welcome to the Next Generation Politics podcast. Next Generation Politics is a cross-partisan, nonprofit building a movement of young people committed to building bridges across various divides. I am Ria, and today my co-host Olivia and I will be discussing media literacy and bias to frame a four-part series on the topic. Today, we will be interviewing Professor Peter Loge, who will give us interesting insight on the ethics and rhetoric of politicians surrounding the media. Thanks for joining us. Get to argue about stuff. We're supposed to argue about stuff. That's how we get things done 
And to to Dan's point of view, with which you disagree, is um, fundamentally anti-American. I think you make an excellent point, but something I think a lot of young people are grappling with today is what is you know freedom of speech and freedom of expression, and where do you put up the limit between hate speech and just regular speech, and then also when you're infringing upon someone else's freedoms. So could you kind of explain that more? There's there's a whole legal body of work there. Um, not all speech is always allowed, right? You can't yell fire in a crowded movie theater and cause a resulting panic. If you yell fire and nobody seems to notice or care, that's probably okay. If you yell fire and nobody runs out and there's no real fire, you know, uh, there are, the court has said that you can put time, place, and manner restrictions on speech, right? There are places you can't protest. You can't protest in a mall because it's private property. It's like walking into your neighbor's house and staging a protest, right? All of that is true. There are increasing calls for banning hate speech, but what hate speech is, is sort of a, a, a tricky and open question, right? If you say, I hate left-handed people, therefore go kill them, that's different than saying, hate left-handed people, right? One of them is an expression, have an emotion. The other is, go do violence, right? You can't incite a riot, right? And a lot of people get concerned about what they see and hear in, in media, but that doesn't mean you have to consume it. Right? I mean, you as a consumer have a choice. If you see an outlet you don't like, if you don't like what Rachel Maddow or Tucker Carlson is saying, turn off the TV, turn the channel. Right? And if they're saying, go to Sandra's house and bang on her door, that's very different than saying, we don't like Sandra. But you can say you don't like Sandra, and I'm sorry, Sandra, but that might happen. <laughs> you know, that's sort of the price you pay. When you talk about having like freedom of speech and you know if someone particularly doesn't like a certain you know media source or specific type of dialogue that they're hearing, I think oftentimes people you know the common response people usually make is turn it off. The issue I guess you could say I see with that is that you know where is the diversification of of points of view? Where is the diversification of discourse that you're hearing? Because if you don't engage in dialogue that you don't necessarily agree with or maybe you have very strong negative emotions about, then you are, you know, in one way or another, ending up growing up or being fostered in an environment that's kind of like a cycle of, like, the same like-mindedness. And I think Echo chamber. Like, yeah, exactly. That's the word. <laughs> um, I, I absolutely agree. But that's not the government's job. Mm-hmm. The government's job isn't to force you to consume media with which you disagree. And it isn't the government's job to tell you to you know, only listen to one side or the other, right? It would be wrong for the government to say, Fox is bad, turn off Fox, or MSNBC is bad, turn off MS- MSNBC. The, it, you have a responsibility as a consumer. That's also true that there, there are media outlets with points of view who do it differently than others, right? So some have a political perspective. There's a lot of, the Bulwark is a conservative news site that's quite good and, and is well-respected. And that's different than people ranting and making stuff up, right? I think it's healthy to get informed perspectives on a number of different issues, right? Both sides does this. There's another site called, oh gosh, Flipside, I want to say, that, that brings liberal and conservative views together and sort of lines them up so you as the, the, the news consumer can make your best decision. So yeah, you ought to get different perspectives. If you don't want it, that's kind of on you. But the president shouldn't be saying this perspective is out of bounds and it should be banned. That's that's not how things work in America. And in those news sites kind of communicating, you know, their message to the public, how can we 
manifest ethics in the whole process? What does that look like? Because I know you had been involved in the project or on ethics and political communication. Like, what does that look like? And what does unethical political communication look like? That's a good question. So I launched the project on ethics and political communication six months ago to promote the study, teaching, and practice of political communication ethics. And I don't have an answer for what's ethical, right? I don't, I don't know the absolute correct answer. I have a set of beliefs I have things that I think work for me. And what I think mostly we ought to do have a responsibility for as people who work in politics, right? I spent most of my career helping elect people, chief of staff in the House, advising elected officials, promoting causes, and that, that all comes with ethical baggage. Can I lie? How much can I spin? How much fear can I generate? All these kinds of things. And from my perspective, my ethical responsibility is to promote, never to undermine the system that allows me to have that debate. Right? I can be aggressive and mean and partisan and all of that, as long as I don't lie, as long as I don't call you you know, un-American or the media are the enemy of the people or the Democrats are the enemy of the people. That's out of bounds because that's attacking the foundations that allow us to have the, the, the conversation. I don't like sports analogies in politics, but they, they seem to work. Um, in sports, you can you know, lay somebody out um, legally. And that's fine. It's part of the game. But don't go after their Achilles or their ankles or don't cheat. It's, it's that perspective. I think when it comes to news, you have a responsibility as a consumer, right? Uh, reporters have a responsibility to tell the truth to to the best they can. They're going to make mistakes, right? But to do the best job they can. If they have a perspective or a bias, to be honest about it. Everybody has a perspective or bias. Own that bias. Although there, there's also, I want to put, an, I want to put something on the table for conversation. I'm editing a book about political communication ethics. And one of the authors is a political professional. He does, he's a media consultant uh, for Democrats. And he's worked for a lot of people you've heard of. And his argument is that fact checkers are bad. Because what happens with a fact checker, and the example he uses is an article from the New Republic on President Obama in 2013. President Obama once was asked, have you ever shot a gun? He said, yes, I go skeet shooting at Camp David. Okay, whatever. A reporter saw this and decided that was the thing that mattered. And they drilled down on the facts. Has he shot a gun? Has he ever skeet shooted, skeet shot? How often has he done it? Is he any good at it? A Republican representative challenged him to a skeet shooting contest. And all is whether or not factually President Obama had gone skeet shooting. That's a factual question. There's a yes or no answer to that. But it's kind of beside the point, right? At the time, the things that were going on in that same press conference at the White House, when the president was asked, the president's spokesperson was asked, had President Obama ever gone skeet shooting? There are questions about Syria. There are questions about immigration. These are real pressing global issues. The author of this chapter argues that by focusing on the factual accuracy of ski shooting, the reporter did democracy a disservice. You've got 45 minutes to ask the spokesperson for the most powerful person in the world, what's going on? You're sucking that time up with skeet shooting. That's a disservice to democracy. By focusing on the facts, you're then distracting from the larger questions of how do we handle uh, immigration in the United States? What do we do about the absolute meltdown, which has been Syria for a number of years? What do we do about climate change? What do we do about all these bigger issues? So by focusing on the veracity of one specific leaf on one specific tree, we lose a conversation about the forest and the forest is what's important. That's his argument. I'm just kind of putting it out there. I mean, I think that now more than ever, the truth matters. Facts matter. Facts are relevant. But I do think context is of equal importance. There's a time and there's a place for 
and for the truth. And in that specific context, that fact, while it might seem really important to someone else, did not belong in that scenario, in that press conference where you had, you know, say 45 minutes with the most powerful person in the world, arguably. And so I, I agree and I disagree. Good. Because I, I disagree in that, you know, it doesn't matter at all that fact checking does not have a place in our society. Because I really do think it, it, it has a place that has a time, but I do agree with the argument that it didn't belong in that press conference at that time. No, it does. You make a really good point about context. A lot of people on the right didn't think President Obama was a real American, they thought he was a Muslim, and all this other kind of nonsense. And so, if you say, aha, here's a lie, you didn't go skeet shooting, what you do is you reinforce one set of, a bunch of other people go, it's lying, it's skeet shooting, and I'll see why. You've all seen this play out in your real life. So that context matters, right? There's also, though, if somebody's lying about who shot first, if they're lying about the actual threat, those facts do matter in the context of a shooting or a war zone or whether or not we go into um, Iraq, right? Whether or not there is, there is uh, weapons of mass destruction or threats of weapons of mass destruction. So I think, but that context is an ethical judgment, right? So I think you're absolutely right. The facts, uh, to quote other people's part of me, facts don't speak for themselves. Right? There are no facts just lying around. We do things with them. Right, so that's for me the ethical question. What are you doing with this stuff? Someone, do you roll your eyes? You know, whatever, you got the math wrong, but the point is over here. Or is, hey, you know what? This, whether or not, you know, who shot first is actually really critical to know what the appropriate response was. So I think you're right about context, and I think you hit it on the head. Um, I think another, you know, issue with the fact checking is that, well, um, I think that there's there's increasingly diminishing bright line for how much fact checking is appropriate. And I think that it's a little bit, um, I don't want to say going down a spiral, but it's a little more chaotic with the new administration because fact checking has become a tool of attack against, you know, the president in a way, especially a tool used by the media. Um, you know, whether it be like Washington Post fact checker, you know, they have like their own, people have like their services running. It's like a very big, commercialized in a way thing. Yeah. Um, I think that obviously she brings up a point about context, like in some cases like recently with um the Sharpie line <laughs> on the, you know, weather map. Can you, uh, can you imagine if any of you had turned that in? Like you're giving a presentation <laughs> and you know, oh, my mistake. And like you draw a line as you're doing your presentation. That's oh my gosh. Yeah. Um yeah, so clearly um there's uh, and importance to fact checking, but I think that another, um, like talking about, you know, like that downward spiral, something that like baffles me a lot is like, well, oftentimes, like the American public, whether it be the right or the left, are not going to be satisfied with the facts. And for like an example, or, you know, to put something out there, is that like when Obama's ethnicity was challenged, um, he released his short form birth certificate and it was not believed. Then he released his long form birth certificate and it wasn't believed. Then he released some other like form of documentation. And it's like, at what point is fact become, it's not, you know, because it's not really considered fact if it's not validated by the public. Well, that's, you, you make a really good point. And that is, we don't reason by facts. We think we're smart, clever people, right? You're obviously smart people. You're, you're working on big, important issues and you're interviewing other smart people. So we almost be very smart, right? Yeah, let's not get ahead of ourselves, right? And so humble too. And so humble, exactly. Just everybody in Washington is very smart and very important. Just, just ask them. The, with apologies to A.A. Mill and Winnie the Pooh, we're all just bears of little brains. We don't go around gathering facts 
and then lining them up. We don't have spreadsheets for every decision you make about what to eat or what to do next or where to go to college or like you don't, your facts matter. But what we really do is assemble a world that seems to make sense for which we seem to have some evidence. We then go about seeking evidence that reinforces that story, right? And the story has to be true enough or true to life, but it doesn't have to be completely accurate. You, don't, you haven't done this yet, but you will at some point go to buy a house or choose. You're, when you're looking at colleges, you have a list of things, right? I want, you know, if I'm looking at colleges, I want to be in a size city. I want to have a really good history program. I want to have, you know, sports teams, whatever, whatever. And you'll visit a college that checks all those boxes and it just won't feel right. Then you'll visit another school that checks some of the boxes, but not all, but think, you know what, this is where I want to be. And you're going to go to that other place and it's going to be fantastic. And it will be against the facts. Because you had your checklist of facts. But the facts just weren't quite it, right? This is how we operate in, in politics, in, in our communities, in our, our society. This is what it means to be all sorts of things. So I think it's, it, it comes back to your point that it's context. Which story are the facts helping tell? How can I use the facts to advance my story? Which facts can I afford to ignore and still have my story be true enough or true to life? It's a story that matters. I think you brought up that the power of exclusion though yeah. do you think there's a point where you can exclude so much truth so many facts and so much content that something becomes unethical or I so biased that it can be deemed unethical that's that's a good question i hadn't thought about it in that context i think that for one each of us can live more or less honestly and hopefully we're open to changing our minds about more than you know just what movie do you want to go see but like changing minds about the important stuff and hopefully facts do matter in that calculation having the facts matter requires each of us to be a bit humble like you've got to go into every situation even ones about which you are absolutely passionate and sure thinking you might be wrong you know what if the other guy might have a point there might be which requires a level of humility and i think we each have a responsibility to to humility right democracy assumes a level of humility as soon as we don't know the best path forward or what's going to happen next which is why we have elections and why we have debates right because we have to sort of argue about what we think is the best way forward something happens and you look around all right is this the best way i don't know let's go forward right if it so that requires willingness to to change and to compromise and to give up stuff you believe in so i think each of us individually has that responsibility as an advocate as a paid advocate which is what i've been for most of my life I gotta tell you, saying, you know what, I'm not sure what I think this is the right way, kind of a thousand dollars, never works, right? No, nobody ever ran for Congress successfully with the slogan, yeah, I think I'm pretty good. <laughs> You've gotta go full force. And that's the question is, as an advocate, how can you do that in a way that doesn't undermine the system in which you were advocating, if that makes any sense? And talking about context, I think one of the biggest contexts that media bias has come up in is the 2020 election coverage. And I think that a question was to you guys is when it comes to election coverage, obviously part of that is controlled by the BFC, right? In terms of debates and stuff like that. But generally, media coverage, uh, you know, there's a lot of back backlash from like Sanders' campaign right now over, you know, like CNN Embassy's coverage of, or New York Times coverage of him. And, you know, my question is is there an obligation by mainstream media sources to cover each candidate amount of representation? And, Another like point I want to emphasize is how much space is there or dialogue is there for third party candidates and independent candidates? Because I personally, it's my belief that like there is not even like a sliver of visibility for third party candidates and for independents. And I think often it's like a 
dismissed, and I think it's because they don't have DC behind them, they don't have super PACs behind them. And I think that we should, you know, discuss and see, you know, like, is there space for 35 candidates, or does that not necessarily obligation of mainstream media? So a couple, a lot of good points that I want to unpack a little bit. The first thing, though, is a point of clarification. The Democratic National Committee controls who participates in Democratic National Committee-sponsored events. It's their party. They can invite whoever they want. If all the other Democrats decided to get together and have their own debate and have it sponsored by Chuck E. Cheese, then they could all come in, right? The DNC controls only the DNC, and the same with the Republican National Committee. Good question. Do you know roughly how many people are running, have filed with the Federal Elections Commission to run for president, which means they've raised at least $5,000? Do, do you have any, do you have a rough guess? I need to include Democrats, Republicans, and independents. How many? 200? <laughs> Good. It's, it's kind of a, I've been tracking this week on week. There's a site called Ballotpedia that um, does a lot I, of good yeah. election stuff. Yeah. Right. So are any of you on Ballotpedia? You're all on devices because that's how we're talking. I mean, I am, but I just haven't specifically looked at that. Yeah, I mean, I can last check. I, last I checked, a week or two ago, it was 800 and something. Wow. Nice. So, that's a lot of noise. We're going to cover them all equally, right? We're going to give equal time to all of them, which means like 90 seconds, continuous coverage, nobody gets hurt. You have to make a decision about who gets covered. There are... I think in the real world, probably three or four Democrats with a shot at the nomination, probably closer to three than four. There's one Republican with a shot at the nomination. He's, he's the guy with the job, right? You, like you've, you've got to make choices. Senator Sanders, this is the second time this week I've been asked about, about Senator Sanders and his views of this. I think Senator Sanders at his... The basis, the base of his argument, I think, is, is a reasonable one. It's one that people have been making for a long time. Most of what you see on television, see online, here on the radio, whatever, is controlled by a handful of companies, right? So Jeff Bezos owns the Washington Post. Uh, NBC Universal owns an alarming number of things. AT&T owns DirecTV. They're producing content, right? And so one, uh, Sinclair Broadcasting owns a bunch of TV stations around America. Right, and they push content out to them. So Senator Sanders' fundamental argument, as I understand it, is that media consolidation is bad because it theoretically limits the number of voices. Right, A thousand TV stations owned by the same guy is not a thousand opinions. It's one opinion repeated a thousand times. And that's a result of media consolidation. A lot of stuff happened in the Reagan administration and then at the end of the Clinton administration. And so that, that argument makes sense. I think the idea that Jeff Bezos, who lives around the corner from me, weirdly enough, Calls the New York, calls the Washington Post every morning and says, That Sanders guy's pissing me off. He's going to raise my taxes. Can him is nonsense. Like, that's nonsense. There is no conference call every morning where the media gets on and says, Who are we going to screw today? Like, nobody's organized enough. Like, even if we could come up with it, you know, we could pull it off, right? We can't. President Obama apparently can't successfully lie about having done ski shooting. You think we're going to somehow all conspire to tank Bernie Sanders? <laughs> Of course he complains about the media coverage. Of course Castro complains about it, and Biden complains about it. Everybody complains about it. Thomas Jefferson loved the free press until he ran for office, and he complained about it. In the Nixon administration, we had the nattering nabobs of negativism, right? This is what candidates do. I think there's a this, the core of Senator Sanders' argument has merit, potentially, and that is media consolidation 
has led to a homogenization of voices, right? We have a lot of people saying the same thing from a bunch of different angles. That said, Fox, Fox News, which, you know, is this very conservative media outlet, also owns The Simpsons and NFL football. So I'm not sure you can draw a consistent ideological line across them, right? So it's like they get their their messaging together within the same company. The idea that we get it together elsewhere is, doesn't make a lot of sense. The Corbyn's argument has some, has some merit. A critical difference, though, between what Senator Sanders, Vice President Biden, Congressman Castro have been saying, and the president, is the Democrats are calling for more press, not less. We need more coverage, more voices, more points of view. The president has called the free press the enemy of the American people. The former, got to agree with it. Let's get more debate. The latter, fundamentally un-American. To the question of third-party candidates. We've had third-party candidates run in this country periodically. Ralph Nader in 2000 and 2004. Uh, we had Ross, Ross Perot, Perot. Uh, in 96. Uh, the Bull Moose Party, right? Uh, Rose, right? FDR ran. Um, we had the Dixiecrats. We had, I mean, a bunch of them. They don't get anywhere. Um, there are a lot of arguments as to why. Um, I think, from my perspective, one argument is structural. Democrats and Republicans control primaries. But also because our system is a is a binary system, right? We don't have multi-party representation. We don't have the parliament, so you have to get a majority. If you get thirty percent, it doesn't by more than other people have lost, but you've still lost. I think a function of the way our system is set up. If you went to multi-party districts, uh, or if you, if you had a system more like a parliamentary system, third parties, third parties don't do well in this country. Everybody says this is the year. This is the moment. This is going to be it, right? Because Trump is so. You know, off in one way, and the Democrats are arguably maybe going off in the other way. Now is the moment for a magical third party to walk through. Every four years, that op-ed gets written in the New York Times, and everybody Every. applauds it, and then it goes away. Yeah, no, I've been hearing a little bit. I listened to a really awesome podcast about how you know America's hidden duopoly is our two-party system, comparing it to Coke and Pepsi, and how they almost thrive as you know the extremes become more apparent in politics. Yeah, so I actually, I, I don't know how to explain to me that way, but, because I don't know, when I think, uh, I think that the way it's kind of presented is like, they don't have a chance because of this institution or this institution. Then they can run. I mean, they ran, yeah. like Perot was on the ballot. Exactly, yeah. My understanding of the data is he pulled equally from Bush and Clinton. Okay, you know, if, if the, another argument is that we don't have third parties, but, um, the party structure allows it, right? So right. in a different universe, you would have a, a party that represented sort of the center-left, center-right that includes Susan Collins and Joe Manchin in the Senate, right? A, a Democrat and Republican senator. Then you'd have a party that was a little more liberal with AOC and Sander, Sanders in it. Then you'd have a more conservative party with uh, Pence and Rand Paul, right? We don't, we don't have a structure that allows that. So what happens is within the Democratic Party, we sort of argue about who's going to be the standard bearer nationally. And the Republicans have the standard bearer nationally, but then also within each congressional district, you have that debate, right? So you've got primaries, the way districts are drawn. You've got moderate Republicans losing to conservative Republicans. You've got moderate Democrats losing to liberal Democrats. In some districts, you've got moderate Democrats losing liberals. So you kind of, you still have that interplay of ideas and you still have a choice. It's different, but it's not quite as stark as it's sometimes presented, I don't think. Yeah, that makes sense. <laughs> sure. Um, yeah, and I think a lot of the, the discussion that we as like young teens and like civic participants have been talking about 
is so personally i run a, a bipartisan politics club in my school where i have democrats sit on one side republicans sit on one side and we have them talk it out you know and that's my favorite part of my day but how can we encourage cross-partisan dialogue on a national level is so baffling to me that there's no federal there's no nationalized bipartisan position like there's no bipartisan director of the white house there's no prevalent issue i guess to some people and i think that the question our podcast listeners and uh, our us specific participants should be asking is how can we encourage more, not just a more balanced pool of media but just a more open dialogue not just like a one-sided kind of conversation that's a, that's a great question. It's an important question, and it's what a lot of people are asking. There are a lot of organizations in, in BC and around the country, starting in people's living rooms and starting at universities and the think tanks trying to answer that. Uh, Heterodox Academy does a good job of this. National Institute for Civil Discourse, uh, to us, um, and like a, like this, there's a, a laundry list of them. Uninvolved, formally or informally, I think of four. It's a big question, uh, and if there were an easy answer, we'd have done it by now. You wouldn't be asking the question because, it's, right. from from my perspective, as not as a an academic or a professor, because I'm not that. I'm a political guy. From somebody who has um, had to pay the bills by advising candidates and issues, um, both both on the campaign side and and as an elected advising elected officials, is a lot of it comes down to incentives. Nobody, nobody gets involved in politics because they like yelling at each other about sharpies on maps of Florida or golf cart rentals, right? Everybody gets into politics for the reason you are, which is we want to make the world a better place. We need to solve the climate fast. It, racism is baked into our system. We've got to deal with that. That's what drives people to get into politics, right? It's not, I want to meet a lobbyist. A job where I get to wear loafers is just not what drives people. The challenge is that's not voter and voters always say we need more compromise. By compromise, that tends to mean I need more people to agree with me. Politicians behave their electoral incentives. If you behave in a way that's going to cost you your job, you will lose your job. You will not behave enough. If you're a candidate running for office, you're going to behave in a way that's going to help you get elected. If you're a cause, pro-gun, anti-gun, pro-choice, anti-choice, whatever it is. You're going to behave in a way that's going to pass your legislation, that's going to raise money, it's going to get you on TV because you think getting on TV will raise your profile, raise your money. That's probably true. So it's about changing the incentives. That means voting for people you might not agree with 100% because you think compromise is important. I need liberals in AOC's district to vote for Biden in a primary. I need moderates in anywhere to vote for Sanders in a primary. If Republicans want the Republican Party to come back to a level that, that it was until relatively recently, they need to vote for Republicans who aren't pure and who are rhinos, Republican in name only. If you want the world to be a better place, reward people who are making it better. And we can talk all we want about why isn't it better and why isn't discourse more civil, but unless you get rewarded for that, we can tell you as a high school student, enjoy high school, take academic risks, if you think you might, Russian's an interesting language, but you'll do poorly at it, take Russian because you'll grow as a person. And you might think, oh, that's well and good. Look, I need this GPA to get into my first choice college. So I'll take Russian later because I'm rewarded for behaving in ways that admissions committees actually do rather than what they say they'll do. And you get to college and your advisor's going to say, the world is your oyster. Take intellectual risks. You know, take cultural anthropology because that sounds interesting. But if you're not going to get an A in cultural anthropology, you might not get into the law school you're aiming for. 
So we will tell you what you ought to do, but we'll reward you for doing something else. You want politicians who don't shout at each other? Don't vote for Bernie Sanders. He spends a lot of time shouting at people. Vote for Pete Buttigieg. He articulates a reasoned vision. On the, on the conservative side, I think Carlos Curbelo, who's a former Republican member of the House from Miami, was a terrific representative. Let's solve problems. Let's figure this out. Right? Vote for the boring people. Vote for the people who do that. It's not going to change. Yeah, and I think that that's what, I, would, I don't know if frustrating is the right word, but exasperates a lot of the American public because personally, I, I think Michael Bennett is like an amazing politician. I think, I think like politicians like Bennett and like Gillibrand, there's just a certain lack of entertainment that I think that has become normalized because of the Trump administration. It's kind of a question of how do we reverse that by encouraging more open dialogue, and I don't think that there's one answer to that. I think you're right, but I'm also, I also think you're wrong. Um, this isn't Donald Trump's fault. Dave Chappelle, a terrific comedian from Washington, D.C., on CNN, sometime in the past year, said Donald Trump didn't make the wave, he's just writing. Right. We've always had entertaining politicians who are over the top, typically new and Tyler to his intervention. Abraham Lincoln wasn't poor in a log cabin. We're always telling these stories. Uh, the, the, Thomas Jefferson used to make up stories about John Adams and have other people place them in the press. Ronald Reagan was president of the Screen Actors Guild before he was a union leader before he was governor of California. Fred Grandy from Love Boat was elected to Congress, right? This is, he was actually a really good smart congressman who was accidentally was an actor for a little while. Fred Thompson, right? He's a, I thought he's a pretty good senator and he's a pretty good actor. We love bread and circuses. This is what we do. I mean, Donald Trump's kind of an outlier, but he's not like the first guy to figure out that the American people, he also genuinely expressed frustration and anger that a lot of people genuinely and legitimately feel about the economy and about their government. Right. So props to him for that. Although there's there's political differences on the conservative side and the local side, I it does baffle me that there there hasn't been as many you know commissions as possible, or there hasn't been like roundtables where people from stakeholders in like the in like medical stakeholders in hospitals and stakeholders in um, the government and then the presidential administration and lobbies how they all have an open together and whether they decide on you know, uh, a, a Medicare for all system or a single payer employment system, how there hasn't been unity in that discussion. I think that that is something that's just like confused me so much. Uh, you're, you're right to be confused by it. Um, I, I go, again, I agree, disagree. So in 1993, I was in the district office of a congressman during Clinton's health care debate. Then in 2009, as a favor to a friend, I went back and worked as a senior advisor in health policy for a Democratic member of the House, who's also a doctor. And I worked in the Food and Drug Administration. And I've also advised another NIH institute. So I know a little bit about this. There have been a, there have been a ton of commissions. There have been endless commissions and roundtables and stakeholders who work together. This is all Clinton did. Uh, we've had that. We continue to have that. The Kaiser Family Foundation does that. Center for Budget and Policy Priorities does that. Everything tech and everybody's got a dog in the healthcare fight. And so we've been doing that. The And the last attempt honestly was was the Affordable Care Act. The, the Affordable Care Act is largely a Republican piece of legislation that was the Republican response to Clinton's bill in, in the 90s and was an outgrowth of then Governor Romney's um, health care reform in Massachusetts, Romney Care. So we've done that. The two, I think there are a couple of overlapping challenges with health care. One is um, it is like everything else become hyper-partisan, right? The one a famous study or poll was in Kentucky, where part of the Affordable Care Act is local exchanges, right? 
And they had one in Kentucky called Connect, K-Y-N-E-C, so it's Kentucky Connect. It's a pun, but it's a pun. And, and people in Kentucky love it, but they hate Obamacare. Connect is Obamacare. Yeah. Right? But one is has the word Obama attached to it, and the other the other doesn't. So there's, it's hyper-partisan. The second thing is we don't think rationally about healthcare, right? Um, we can talk rationally about the best practices and all that when it's somebody else. If it's your mom or dad or you, you've got a broken leg, you glue out an ACL. You're not comparison shopping at that point the way you buy a phone. You're screaming in pain, grabbing your knee and demanding a hospital. Another challenge is it is blindingly complicated. You can't just fix one piece of healthcare. Our healthcare system was created largely as an accident of wage and price controls in World War II. You couldn't give people raises. And so employers, in order to attract new talent, instead gave them healthcare. It was a workaround. And we've built the train as it's been hurtling down the tracks and stopping that train is really, really hard. Getting consensus is incredibly hard. And you can't, even moving to, okay, we want single payer. Like if we, if we started from scratch, we would not invent the system we have. Nobody would invent the system we have to start from scratch. Getting to single payer means firing every single insurance agent in America. Hartford exists as a city largely because of the insurance industry. You take the insurance ind- health insurance industry away, towns vanish. Hundreds of millions of dollars goes away. And it's good in like the macro, yes, but there'd be more care for us. Yeah, unless it's your dad. Your mom is the CEO of a health insurance company. You probably have very different feelings about the implications. When I was working on healthcare reform, I had an insurance broker in the office saying, the problem with this is my job as an insurance broker is to explain insurance to you. If you can look at it online, the way you do Yelp or TripAdvisor, my job goes away. And part of me is thinking, yeah, sucks to be you, but yes. (laughs) But like that guy's got a house and kids who live in high school who want to go to college. And, and the incentives are, are a disaster. Nobody knows how much healthcare costs because none of us pay for it. From a media standpoint, there is a prospect of social media being a tool for creating and demonstrating a consensus for policy. Is it a realistic thing to do or are we predisposed to let both sides tear each other apart instead of trying to reach common ground? Yes to all of it. We are predisposed to tear each other apart. Yes, it can be used to demonstrate consensus. Yes, it can be used for positive change. If you want social media to demonstrate change, here's my suggestion. Uh, Don't demonstrate. We have people. Uh, What does that even, right? You want, if you want to create change, I've got a very simple rubric. Conceptually simple, operationally difficult. Who has power? And it's not the people or the press. They don't have power, right? In a classroom, 25 people, one of them has power, that's the teacher, right? All of you are there to learn, you're gonna grow, you wanna impress the girl, and you wanna like get everybody to the party, whatever. You're there to get a good enough grade to get into a good enough college. Precisely one person matters in that universe, right? So you wanna create policy change, Senator Mitch McConnell, Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell. He doesn't care about you, because you don't live in Kentucky. Doesn't care about me. I'm a Democrat who worked for President Obama who lives in Washington, D.C. Like, my existence is, at best irrelevant to him. You need to find enough people in Kentucky to whom he listens, about whom he cares, on social media to make your point. That's not all the Democrats in Kentucky. All the Democrats in Kentucky vote against Mitch McConnell. Mitch McConnell keeps his job. You need to figure out who matters to him. Who is he at risk of losing? Right? And for him, that's probably universities. 
because they matter a lot. They employ a lot of people. They have a high, they have a lot of prestige. They get a lot of federal grants. It might be um, big industries, right? What are the big industries that Senator McConnell cares about? Maybe it's healthcare, maybe it's mining, maybe it's manufacturing. I, I just don't know the economics of the state. Those you get a hundred or a thousand or ten thousand of those people on social media. Now you're going to have an impact. You get a million people between California, New York, and Massachusetts. Mitch McConnell's going to say, "See, I told you so." Those people are crazy. And I think um, there was a there was a period of time um, on Instagram after the Sudan, uh, you know, events unfolded that everyone changed their Kapakashur blue to like symbolize, you know, like awareness and resistance to what was going on. And I thought that was so interesting because it was definitely play of like the hardest thing of, of like young people and their power and social media power, but it also no. in my opinion. No. Yeah, but, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, no. So I happen to help start the Save Darfur Coalition to draw attention <laughs> to the genocide in, in Sudan in the early nine, early 2000s. Mm-hmm. And we did that. Like there were the people who got arrested and there were the bracelets. One of my favorite stories, and I know the time is short, so I'll keep it short. Joy Cheek, an American speed skater, happened to be wearing one of our bracelets that said Save Darfur. And he happened to wear it on the metal podium, and somebody happened to see it on TV. We figured out how to FedEx a case of bracelets to the Olympic Village, and he started hanging them. It is harder than you might imagine to FedEx anything to the Olympic Village. <laughs> but we drew public attention to it, right? And that mattered at some level. What really mattered was we needed President Bush to make the genocide a priority, and we needed this UN Security Council to vote to, to punish the genocide to punish the country, right? This the, the barrier on the Security Council was China, because China kept voting to stop um, sanctions. China doesn't care how many emails you sent. It's a different country. Yeah. President Bush, um, we got to President Bush by saying, he takes his faith very seriously, he's evangelical. We said white evangelicals and white Christians are being murdered. That got his attention. He cared about the people of Sudan, right? He's a caring man. But you can only, you've got to sort of shift your attention. We focus his attention by saying that. We try to get the American people to care by saying, this looks just like the Holocaust in Europe, right? Because I don't know how to wrap my head around Sudan. I can't find it on the map. They're starving. Africa's complicated. Aren't they just tribes? But wait a minute, there was no Mandela. I don't get it. Eh, you turn the channel. I need to, I need a context I can understand. So we very intentionally said, this is a genocide. They are doing what they Right. Now I get it. Now I know what to do about it. We got to China, they have a national attention. China was getting ready to host the Olympics in Beijing. And uh, they were trying to prove to the world that they were beacons of human rights and justice, which meant they were doing lots of things to prove that. And so we highlighted in China and to Chinese officials that they're blockading or they're preventing the, the sanctions was, was a clear violation of human rights. And frankly, the wristbands in, in the Olympics helped with that. So everybody online, Terrific, good background noise, you create political space, you help get it on the agenda. The decision makers were Chinese leaders and President Bush. President Bush cared about the evangelical mission. China cared about looking good on human rights so they could get away with hosting the Olympics. Thank you so much for you know engaging in this discussion. I think it was very fruitful and we brought a lot of different points of view in and I think your expertise definitely, you know, shed a light on some of the issues that I was confused about as well as many of our fellow podcast people here. So um, yeah, thank you. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. Uh, Keep it up. It's interesting stuff.